freedom 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 over fame freedom over cycle stays the same welcome first of all welcome this is unsolicited perspectives i am your host bruce anthony thank you for listening and watching wherever you get your podcast and video podcast subscribe share like comment and rate us you can find us on instagram youtube and twitch at unsolicited underscore perspectives on twitter and tiktok at unsolicited underscore per watch us live every thursday night 7 30 p.m eastern on youtube and twitch our audience continues to grow with each and every episode and i humbly thank you on today's episode i'm going to be interviewing emily betzel She's a lawyer, partner in a law firm, a mother, and we're going to be talking about adoption, hers, and her adopting her kids. But first things first. So, like I said at the top, where I'm going to be interviewing Emily Betzel today. Like I said, she's a lawyer, has a bunch of different degrees, got a psychology degree, an MBA, uh, a lawyer partner in a law firm. Uh, she was also adopted as an infant and uh, she's adopted three children, uh, three children from Korea. So this is going to be a conversation about adoption in her life, how she got to uh, where she is in life, how she came to the decision to, to adopt children. And it's a really good interview that's going to keep you on the edge of, the seat, uh, edge of your seat because she's got a really interesting story and interesting background. So I'm not going to ramble. I'm going to get straight to the interview. So enjoy. Welcome. And I'm here with, let's run down a list of accomplishments. Psychology major. She has an MBA. She's a partner in a law firm. And perhaps her most important job, she's a mother. Emily Betzel, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And we're going to be talking about something that, uh, well, we're going to be talking about your life, but a very, very important aspect of your life because you have a very interesting story that uh, you were adopted and then you also decided to adopt children. Mm -hmm. So that's really what we are going to be talking about today. So can you give uh, the people a little bit of the background of your adoption of my personal adoption yeah of your personal adoption so i was adopted as an infant in south carolina um i was i think two or three days old my birth mother was 16 at the time uh, what i know now is my birth father was 22 or three at the time and my parents had been attempting to have children unsuccessfully uh through i guess the nature way and um, they decided that they wanted to adopt after my mother talked to her OBGYN. Your adoptive parents decided to adopt. They were the ones that were trying to have a, a child, sure. as you said, the natural way. And, uh, and so, yeah, and then they decided to adopt. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so you were adopted as an infant and uh, something happened after your adoption. What was that um, with your adoptive parents? Oh, right. <laughs> so um, I guess after they learned that they were going to be successfully adopting me or thought that they were, they became unexpectedly pregnant with my sister, who is exactly to the day seven months younger than me. So she and I grew up as older sister, younger sister, but really we're the same age. Um, really the same age, so. yeah. Um, how did growing up as an adopted child shape your sense of identity and understanding of family? When I was a kid, young, we'll call it up until the age of uh, 15 or 16, I was always the other child. Um, and so, and, and I didn't know anybody else that was adopted. So I felt very, I guess, uncomfortable and displaced at times when that came to other people talking about their families. 
I don't think I realized it because I was so young and I didn't know I was adopted until I was probably age four or five when my parents sat us all down and said, we're going to tell you something important. And I think not knowing anybody else that was adopted at the time was very difficult because it was confusing and it is a confusing conversation and subject and no one else would talk to me about it. No one in my family, even my parents wouldn't talk to me about it. So I think it was always like I was a little bit of an outsider when it came to family itself. Um, I think as I got older, what happened is I decided that being adopted meant that you can have lots of different types of families and that you can have, that you can love people that are your best friends. I have many best friends that have been friends for 30, 40 ish. Well, I guess I'm not, maybe not 40 years, but close to 40 years. And those people are more my family than anybody else at this point in my life. And so I don't know that I define family in the same way that people that are not adopted define family. That makes sense. Uh, You said you felt like an outsider. I don't know if those were your exact words, but is that directly in the relationship between you and your sister? Because y'all are so close in age. Um, Was there a a dynamic there? (laughs) So I, I think some of it was Casey was not adopted and I was. Uh, and some of it was just not ever being able to talk about adoption, not being able to ask questions, not being able to, it, it just was an off the table topic. It's still off limits for my parents today. I'm 42. Um, it's kind of off limits to my sister in some ways. She will talk to me about it, but she doesn't really want to talk about the differences between us, mostly because her experience of me being adopted was very different than my experience. And so I think I felt like, an outsider in the family because I wasn't biologically related and I didn't look like anybody in the family. And also a lot of pressure to be perfect. Uh, it's pretty common adoptee, I guess, trope, these, not trope, I don't like that word, uh, story in that you're feel, you feel a lot of pressure to fit in with your family and you don't feel the, the flexibility or the space to ask questions. And I don't think I even could now ask questions about at least not from my adoptive parents, what happened. Okay. So your parents decide at the age of four or five to sit you and your sister down and tell you the truth. Uh, Did you ever ask, you say the adoption, that conversation was off the table, but I'm sure you had to be curious. Uh, Did you ever ask your parents why that moment, what brought about that conversation? And do you have any memories or moments that stick out to you in that conversation? I definitely have asked them over the years, what made them tell me when they told me? And the answer is always very short. We just thought you were old enough. Everyone had told us that we should never tell you. And that was pretty common back in the 1970s and the early 80s that you adopted a child, especially the child looked like you in terms of race. You probably wouldn't tell your kids. And I have friends now as an adult that found out by accident through different ways, Ancestry.com or finding a paper or those types of things. But my parents decided they were going to tell me, but they needed to wait until I was old enough. And I I mean, did it really shaped how my life is? And it also shaped because I've never been able to say to them, hey, guys, one day I was your kid. And one day the next day I felt like I wasn't quite as much of your kid as Mm as my sister was. Mm-hmm. And when you're so young, you don't know how to name those feelings or those thoughts in ways that are productive. But I mean, honestly, the research in terms of adoption has come so far since 1980 that they were just doing what they were told to do and kind of, they were just kind of muddling through the best that they could for, from their own generational traumas and navigating this kid who was adopted. And they didn't, I mean, There was no way for them to know what my experience was. And unfortunately, I had no one else around me, no other adopted kids to talk to, to say, like, like, this kind of sucks, or I'm kind of confused by this, or do your parents talk to you about this, or those types of things. But I have a very clear memory of being sat down and told. I I, I can picture the entire, like, where we were in the house, who was there. It was, I mean, it was just my nuclear family at the time. 
I was sitting on my mom's lap. We were in this old recliner that she liked. We were by the window. I have very, very detailed, vivid memories. And I was very young, so I don't have a whole lot of memories like that. But clearly it was a memory that was going to, what would they call them, core memories? That mm-hmm. was going to shape me. Mm-hmm. Because from that moment on, I was different in a way that I didn't understand and I couldn't talk to anybody about, which is difficult. It is difficult. You said your sister has a different um, experience. Yeah, experience with your adoption, and and you said you know, like kind of it's kind of an off limits conversation, but I'm sure she's expressed that. What was her experience with your adoption? So for me, being adopted, it was pressure to be perfect in a way that meant that I could fit in and be loved. And, and there's a whole other layer of abuse that was happening in my house that had nothing to do with the adoption. But I think even the adoption itself would have created this situation where I felt very different and othered and pressure to fit into the family. Um, and what my sister felt was everybody thinks Emily's the golden child. Nobody loves me enough because I was a, an afterthought. And that wow. is, I think, I think she's accurate in that. And I think that, dynamic that they placed on us meant because it was always the the narrative was we waited for you forever we prayed for you we tried to get pregnant we couldn't get pregnant and then a miracle happened and my OBGYN told me that there was this girl that was pregnant and she was looking to place the baby and I don't know that she she wouldn't have used the my parents wouldn't have used those words because those are more common adoption words um But to my family, I was prayed for and I was wanted and I was loved and I was needed and I was going to complete the family. And for Casey, my mom thought she was a tumor for a while and told everyone that and so told me that. And I'm sure I teased Casey about it growing up because kids are mean. And right. Siblings are jerks. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Siblings are the worst. And I think from Casey's ex- experience, all she, no, nothing she ever did was going to be good enough to meet this golden child expectation. So I was living up to this unreasonable expectation and she was also living up to my unreasonable expectation. But those experiences are different. And I think it meant that we fought more, that we then typical siblings. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I think it made an additional layer of anger and resentment that didn't need to be there. And it carried through. I mean, she and I, she's about to be 42 and we don't talk that often. And, you know, we'll go through waves of being really close, but it it doesn't last long because there's so much, there's so Baggage. much history. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's, we're not angry with each other. We just can't be close to each other. Yeah, I mean, that sometimes that happens uh, in sibling relationships. So with that dynamic of you being the, the golden child, I'm sure there was, like in most sibling households, there's some type of rivalry. Um, you're, you're a very accomplished person. I ran down your degrees and the fact that you're a partner in a law firm now. Um, so that means you probably did well in school um, where there are competitions, especially with you guys basically being the same age. So you probably were in the same grade, depending on when her birthday falls. Um, so where there are competition in grades and, and oh, sports and all that type of stuff. Yeah. 100%. So what my parents said when we were young is um, they put us both in a private school so that I could test into the grade above me. That was too young for so my birthday was past the date so that Casey and I wouldn't be in the same grade. But the Uh, problem with that is I was always, Casey and I made similar grades, but I was always mm -hmm. a grade ahead of her and we Mm -hmm. were the same age. And then I graduated high school early. So I went to college two years earlier than she did. And we were the same grade. And the trope was always, well, Emily's got A pluses. You just, you only have A minuses or you have B pluses or Emily got this award at school or Emily's valedictorian, you're only top 20% of the class or 10% or whatever she was. Um, You're never going to be as smart as Emily. You're never going to be as good as Emily. And I don't think that that's true. I think my sister is brilliant, but I don't, but that was absolutely the narrative in the house. 
that was a narrative that was actually spoken or was that unspoken? Oh, no, it was spoken. It was wow. definitely spoken to me and to her. Wow. So, and this is your parents saying this. And yes. And there's so there's already a dynamic of pitting us against each other in this like Emily's the golden child narrative. But then it not just in favoring in favoring me it like in that way that everybody knows somebody's favor, but nobody says it out loud. No, it was definitely said out loud by grandparents, by my parents. And I, you know, looking back on it, my dad's parents were alcoholics and my mother's didn't know her father very well and had an abusive stepfather and a very abusive mother who uh, wasn't diagnosed with bipolar disorder until she was probably 75. So they came from these houses that were difficult and abusive and traumatic. And I don't think that they knew how to deal with jealousy of their kids being smart or jealousy of their kids having more privilege than they had growing up or any of the other things that happen when you become a parent that, I mean, I think I say it all the time, like, God, my kids have it so damn easy. Like, (laughs) 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 because they do have it easier than me. And it is a difficult, um, I guess, thought to have and not act on it in a way that is detrimental to your kids. And that's what happened. I mean, I think my kid, my parents, saw Casey as biological and not as good as me. And they saw me as not biological and not as good or and not as good as them or not the same as them. And I think in my father's mind, he wasn't smart. None, none of my parents would, I, I'm the first person in my entire, I think family to go to college. And so in my dad's mind, Emily's smart because she's not related to us, but she's also bad because she's not related to us. And Casey's good because she is related to us, but she's not smart because she's related to us. And neither of wow. those things are true. It's a lot. Yes. There, that, I that a lot is of therapy a... to unpack these layers. <laughs> okay. Let's, 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 let's okay. switch to something. Uh, because you brought up all your accomplishments and, you know, Battle Victorian graduated high school early and all this and that, yeah. you know, you know, you got your psychology degree, you got your <laughs> MBA, you got your law degree, you got all these different things. How did your educational journey contribute to your personal and professional growth? My educational journey or my yeah. doctor? The, no. Now, your educational journey, how did that contribute to your personal and professional growth? Because so people don't know this, but you grew up in a small town in South Carolina. I did. So you're graduating high school early and you're going off to college. No, my baby. Yeah. So in this journey of your education, as you as you went to three separate colleges and you're stacking up all these degrees, how did that contribute to your personal and professional growth? I think that that answer is different now than it would have been 10 years ago, but. Ooh, let's examine both of them. So today I would say going to college early meant that I had to um, overcome some immaturities quicker than I would have had I not gone to college at 16. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I felt like I was in competition with everyone and because I was immature and I was a kid. And I felt and like could I that have to... been carryover from the way you were raised because you were 100%. in constant competition. So you 100%. just went from competing with your sister to competing, competing with your classmates. With yeah, that's right. And competing with myself and pushing myself harder because I wanted to be seen as more grown up. And I mean, when you're 16 and your roommate's 18 or 19, you do feel like a little kid because that's a big mm-hmm. age gap at that age. Yeah, at that, at that age. age, yes. Um. And I think what happened is it made me push myself harder. And so because I pushed myself harder, I got good grades in college because I pushed myself harder. I got really good grades in grad school and then I got good grades in law school. And because of that, it meant that I had more opportunities um, professionally, I think, than other people would have but for that narrative and but for that experience. But I think that going 
to school so early. Um, I mean, I needed to get out of the house that I was in. So going to school early was, it saved me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I realized that back then that I was saving myself, but I think that what happened is I had to grow up really fast and I don't know that I appreciated it. I, I did not appreciate the lessons that I was learning so young and how to navigate difficult spaces mm-hmm. that then carried into how to navigate difficult spaces in my professional life and how to navigate. Because, I mean, being in a, in a profession where most of the upper, I guess, senior management now is in their 60s and usually white and usually male is it comes with a different level of um, navigating is not quite the right word, but uh, you have to switch how you would talk to them and how you would manage them and manage up. And I don't think that I would have been able to do that successfully without having those experiences very young. Yeah. And I was fortunate. I've been really, really lucky to have lots of mentors and other things. So there are other things, there are other people that helped me get to, the, to where I am. It wasn't just me on my own. But if you had asked me 10 years ago, I'd have told you I did it all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> so now you appreciate the team of your success as opposed to to just, it's, it was just all me. Now it's, no, it was a team that helped me to no, get to where I was. there's lots of different people along the way that, but, that supported me and gave me advice and gave me a place to stay or fill in the blank thing that I needed at the time to keep going. I had a lot of good friends and, and I mean, not just mentors professionally, but friends and people that are my family that really supported me. And I don't think I appreciated that when I was 32. So what I'm gathering from what you're saying is, is that even though you had to get out of your house at, at a young age and, and then you go into in this environment at very young in college, that 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 helped you navigate yourself in your professional career, because had you not had that, maybe your professional career navigating that would have been extremely more difficult. But you had these challenges so young that you, you were like, by the time you got into I'm paraphrasing here from what I think I understand for what you're saying, but having those challenges so young prepared you when you entered the professional world, like I didn't been through that before. I'd have been through something way harder than that. I can definitely get my way through this. And I think that that has served me well in the last, we'll call it five ish years of my professional career. Mm-hmm. And I think that the chip on my shoulder, because of all the things that had happened before, because of all, all the hard work I had to put in, because it was in my mind harder for me. And it, it, I think those held me back 10 years ago in a mm-hmm. way that they don't now. And I mean, we'll call that therapy or we'll just call it growth <laughs> or some combination But I think that going through really difficult experiences does shape you and does allow you to go through different difficult experiences later on. I just wasn't the only one going through them. I I wasn't the only person having a hard time. There are many, many, many people have different hard times for many different reasons um, that take that experience and become better in however they do. So I, I hope that's growth. We'll see. Sounds like that's growth to me. <laughs> well, at 10 years, we constantly take uh, more and more steps and reevaluate uh, where we were. And, and, and we hope to not be the same person that we were last year. Right. So 10 years, yeah. there should be significant growth. I hope so. <laughs> OK, so, Emily, we've talked about your career. Uh, and we've talked about you being adopted, but as I said, the started a show that you've also adopted children. So you were married, uh, and you and your husband at that time decided to adopt three children and you adopted three children from Korea. So my questions are what led you to adopt? What led you to adopt children from Korea? And what was that whole process of adoption like? So... I have never, I don't remember a time in my entire life where I thought that I would 
get pregnant and have a child, or at least not intentionally. Um, and even if it was intentionally, I don't know that I would still have had a child that way. So I always knew if I had kids and I was not hundred percent sure I would just as you're growing up, you don't know uh, that I would adopt kids. Once Eric and I decided, my ex-husband and I decided that we would move forward to having kids. I, he had known the whole time for years that I would only wanted to adopt. And by then we were probably three or four or five years into our actual relationship, you know, like dating marriage relationship. So we contacted several different adoption agencies in the area and we chose the one that we thought was most ethical. Hmm. I was very, very, very adamant about not adopting domestically. I still feel pretty strongly about this. If you, if I had to do it again today, I would not adopt domestically. And a lot of that is wrapped up in me being adopted, my adoption being closed me mm. not having any medical, even medical information, like whenever mm. you go to the doctor and even now, I mean, I know more information now, but even up until my mid thirties, every time an adoptee goes to the doctor, you get asked where your, do your parents have diabetes? Do your parents have high blood pressure? These like long list of medical questions that you can't answer. And doctors never remember, and it's never in your file, even if you've gone to the doctor for 10 years, that you can't answer the question and they still ask you the damn questions. So I really was not okay with a closed adoption system. I was really adamant that I thought that there was a lot of corruption in adoption in in the States. I think that that is still very true. I think that birth mothers are still coerced into um, making the decision to place their children with an adopted family. Um, So we decided we were going to go international and uh, we picked an agency we thought was ethical. We picked a program of the programs that that agency uh, supported in terms of international countries that we thought was the most ethical. I still believe that Korea is probably the most ethical. There are lots of stories of international adoption that are not ethical. Um, and when you say ethical, I mean, give me an no example? coercion, no one's getting paid off to, to place their child. No one's getting pressured by the government or pressured by a doc- like that. It is a consensual situation, not a, let me give you a bunch of money or maybe, or let me physically intimidate you to, mm. to place this child. And that does okay. happen in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially in countries where uh, there are poor, more poor societies, a lot of women get lied to told that they, if they give their baby to the agency or to the orphanage, they'll get paid a bunch of money and they can always come back and get their baby later. And that's never, excuse me, that is not often true in those situations. That's not happening in Korea and, or at least not to my knowledge from what I understand. So that's how we chose Korea. Um, I think there's still problems with a Korean adoption system uh, as I think they're probably, I don't know that there is an adoption system that has, that's devoid of problems, but um, I still believe that they're the most ethical in terms of making sure that birth mothers are taken care of, not coerced into placing their children, given the opportunity to parent. Uh, The Korean government has made some decisions to try to encourage parenting uh, in Korea. Okay. So um, as everything else I do, it was a very (laughs) well-researched decision. It sounds like it was very researched. Yeah. In terms of um, uh, the thing I didn't realize in the beginning, because I wasn't a mom and I didn't have any experience with kids is that adopting a child that's 14, 15, 16, 17 months is very difficult in many different ways. And and adopting any child means that your child is going to have severed their relationship with, with their parent, with Mm -hmm. their first parents and possibly severed relationships with subsequent foster parents or, or something like that. And there's going to be loss there and there's going to be trauma there. And I knew that part uh, because of my own experience. But what I didn't understand is 
um, watching a child grieve at that age is, is heartbreaking. And I'm not saying I think I made the totally wrong decision. My kids are amazing. I mean, they're a little wild, but um, they're amazing humans. They're just really good humans. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they test me, they're just really <laughs> cool, interesting, good humans. <laughs> but what I didn't realize from being a mom would be, was I was going to miss, like when people say, oh, what was it like? Several things happen. What was it like when Jay was a month old? I don't know. Oh, well, you must have had a really easy time because you didn't have them as, as newborns. And I was like, well, the transition with a 15 month old who doesn't know your language and doesn't know your smells and has had several transitions isn't like the walk in the park that you think right. it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I still think I would do it again. I have one of my really close friends uh, adopted a baby, an infant, two years ago now. And she and her husband have been married a few years and it was still a struggle. They adopted domestically. Uh, it's an open adoption and it is, it, it's still a big struggle. And I don't think that her journey or my journey, I, I don't think you should ever compare how hard your life is, but I don't think that, that our journeys are dissimilar and how difficult um, that transition was. Um, With all three of them, you said the uh, oldest one was 15 months. Did you adopt? 16, yeah, somewhere around there. The, the other two, were they closer to? They were no? Yeah, somewhere. All three of them were somewhere between, I think, 14 and 16 months. Did going through it the first time make it easier the second or third time? No, because they're all three different personalities. Just different personalities. And also, you know, Jay, unfortunately, gets the the like idiot parents at no matter what age Jay is going to be, Jay gets the idiot parents, right? Yeah. Cause I, I will never know what it's like to parent anything other than a 12 year old child at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Jay got the, like, I don't think I'd ever changed a diaper mom. <laughs> so- Good God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my and they're goodness. like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, somebody gave me a baby. Like, this isn't, this is not right, guys. I don't think we should be doing this. That's right. <laughs> Whereas Dona got the mom that understood babies, right? Mm-hmm. And then Noah got the mom that like was too tired and just like let him have every anything he wanted. So every child got a different version of me. Mm-hmm. And I think I think they all had it very difficult because of their personalities, but there were easier things and more difficult things depending on which child you were. Downa mm. came home and there was Jay and Jay was three years older than Downa. So Jay was like four and a half, it's 2015. Jay was four okay. when D came home. And so um, D had a little, like a, an older sibling to look up to. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, Oh, cool. This sibling trusts these people that this sibling seems to be thriving. Maybe they won't, Maybe they're pretty cool, you know, whereas Jay was just like, I don't know you and I'm mm-hmm. not going to need to know you because you are mm-hmm. not my mom. And I think Downa had an easier time trusting. And I, I've seen this with other kid groups is that kids trust adults that other kids trust. Huh. Okay. Didn't, did not know that before D. And then I think Noah also had that similar experience and Downa and Noah are still very close. And so they had that experience that was really awesome. And Jay has had experiences where they get to do a lot of things that their younger siblings don't get to do. And I just think it was very hard every time. And some of it was, you know, right before we got matched with D, uh, my birth parents came or showed up, excuse me, not my birth mother, not my birth parents. My birth aunt showed up, I think a few months before we got matched. Okay. So before you match with your second child, your birth aunt, this is the sister of your mother or mother, birth, mother. birth mother. So your birth aunt 
comes searching for you, not your birth mother or your birth father. Right. And how does that come about? <laughs> well, um, the story is that uh, I was supposed to be in a closed adoption and they were in a town, we'll call it like 45 minutes from the town that I grew up in. And um, they placed and my parents adopted, but my father had a friend that lived in between these towns because of his job mm-hmm. that knew that they were adopting a little baby and knew the story because they just blabbed the information everywhere. Your, that, your adopted parents. Yes. My okay. dad, so my dad had a friend that, um, that they were, they were obviously took cause they were excited. We're adopting a baby. The birth mother is 16, whatever, whatever. Um, we got it through this OBGYN. That woman also knew, or that couple also knew my birth mother and my birth mother's mother because she worked with my birth mother's mother. Because your town, because your birth parents are only about 45 minutes away. And they're all small towns in South Carolina, uh-huh. in the middle of South Carolina. Um, and my father's job took him like throughout the entire state. So it's not, it just happened to be this family, but mostly the woman, because I, what I understand is the woman worked with my birth grandmother, well, birth step grandmother. Um, okay. So we're going to, we're going to have to uh, label things so that okay. people can okay. follow along. We'll call, I, them people's name. we'll call them by people's names. Okay. We don't have to put their real names out there, but when you yeah. say you're mother or father, you're talking about, your adoptive parents. I'm so that's an automatic default. Parents. That's okay. right. So your adopt your dad, who was your adoptive father, yes. worked all along the state. Yes. He had it. Your adoptive parents had a friend. Yes. That knew the family of your birth, that knew your birth yes. family. And my birth mother, we'll call her Anne. Um had a stepmother and the stepmother worked with this friend. Okay. So she, the friend also knew the stepmom's story. And did they know this, this the entire time or my was, did the parents they, oh. never knew? Okay. But the friend knew and told my birth mother's family who I was going to and where I was and what I was doing and what, and about my parents and what they did and all this stuff. So your birth family always, yeah. always knew where you were. They always knew. So okay. around 34, right before my 34th birthday, let me get this right. No, right before my 33rd birthday, they showed up. Excuse me. Uh, my aunt's um, sister contacted me on my work email because she knew my name. So she just Googled me. We'll call her Jill. Now, this is your work email, and this is year 34, so it's 2004-ish. This right before my 34th birthday. So, Okay. Are you, when you get this email, are you at work? Because it's smart. So it it gets a little better because my family, my mom and dad, each had a lot of siblings and I grew up in the town that my dad grew up in and he, his family, like, well, he only had one sibling, but like I had a very large extended family. My grandmother had eight brothers and sisters. Mm. Like it's so to have someone contact me and say, hi, Emily, it's aunt Jill. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you would be weird, but not like totally off brand. Okay. Or like an elderly aunt who just got eaten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I called my mom from work that day and said, Hey Ma, like, um, who's this lady? Her name is so-and-so. And, um, she says she's my aunt. And like, I don't, I think I remember an aunt so-and-so, uh, is that, is that so-and-so's sister? And my mom was like, I don't know that person. We're gonna have to ask your dad. Because it would have been somebody. The the thought was it would probably be somebody from my dad's side. Okay. Uh, it was not. 
And then it clicked with my mother in some, in the conversation that day that it was probably my, my birth family reaching out and she, and then it come, and then over the years, like the story of how they found me and how they knew who I was has come out. Um, and that was basically through a Google search. Yeah. Okay. They knew my name. I mean, if you know mm-hmm. somebody's name. Yeah. You can find, you can get everything, everything that you want. You can find on the internet. Yeah. And they knew I'd moved to DC. They knew, I mean, they've been following me, right? Or following me through this word of mouth from this, this mutual connection. So by this point, you had already gotten your law degree. You were already a lawyer, correct? Mm-hmm. When your biological aunt reaches out to you, what is going through your mind? Do you think it's genuine? Do you think there's nefarious activity sure. going on because you've, you're a lawyer and it's small town, South Carolina? Like, like, I mean, my, my mom, my dad said that my dad was like, what do you think they want? And I was like, I don't know. Like, it, cause that I'm in shock. I'd been looking for them on and off. I asked my parents when I was 21 if they'd help me find them and they wouldn't. Mm. And so I had been looking and there's all this information that they had, the lawyer's name that they used to finalize with the court. And the I could have gone to the doctor, but I didn't have his name. So like there's lots of information because in South Carolina, I can't just go and ask for my records to be open. That's not, well, I guess it might be a thing now, but it was not a thing it went in 2001. Um, so when records are sealed, they are sealed forever. Yeah. So my family had a lot of information that I could have possibly gone to the people and said, can you reach out to this family? But my family wouldn't help me. So I was more in shock. I don't know that I thought like that they had any ill intentions. Now, since then I've met my birth fathers or not met, but I've, you know, virtually met my birth father and his wife and her, their two siblings. And then his daughter from his first marriage, who I accidentally told we were siblings. So there's been a lot of, there's been a long journey of this, like unfolding of these people that are related to me. Emily, I got to do a pause because you just said so much <laughs> at me and I have so many questions. Number it's, one, it's a little wild. Yeah. Number one, it, okay. So your parents won't help you find your biological family at the age of 21, but they, they reach out to you at, at the age of 34, probably at some point over that 13 year period, you just like, whatever, I guess it's never going to happen. I can't do anything about this. Yeah. So there has to be some relief at that point because you were searching for your biological 100%. family 13 years 100%. later. Um, as you're introduced to your biological family and you start finding out information, what different set of emotions go through you specifically because they're so close? You mean in age? No, so close in distance. Your family is right oh, there. Oh, in terms of, yeah. Um, I mean, first I felt an extreme loyalty to my parents. Your adopted parents. They did not parents. want me to meet them. They did not mm-hmm. want me to have anything to do with them. They did My mom couldn't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole lot of, that's her own journey. Um, so I've had a lot of loyalty to them. And so when my sister, my, uh, my sister from my adoptive family and I decided we we're going to go meet my birth mother's entire family, all of her siblings, except her, all of her nieces, nephews, not her. The first time you meet your biological family, you're meeting everybody. We met the entire family. And I asked, I asked my sister to go with me. And she said, yes, but we did not tell my parents. And we never your did. Your adoptive sister. And you didn't tell your yes. adoptive parents. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, and so for a long time, I just couldn't, I think I just didn't process it. I think I emotionally shut down. We got matched with D. But other things had gone on in my marriage. Um, almost, like about a month later, uh, there were some things that went on in my marriage that eventually made it impossible for us to be together. Um, so I think I just had too much at one time and Donna, we matched with Donna and, um, in 20, it, like, you know, a few months later, maybe four months later. And so we just, I, I think I just let it sit. 
Hmm. And every now and then my aunt will reach out to me. She still reaches out to me. Um, for a little while, she wanted a really close relationship with me. And I got in my birth father's who does, who's not connected to my birth mother anymore and hasn't been for 40 years. Um, birth father's new wife, second wife wanted to be very close to me because she's only two years older than me. And, um, wait a minute, what? It's, that's, a, I mean, that's like a side story, but yes. Wait, wait a minute, what? You said your birth father's second wife is only a few years older than you? She's two years older than me. She's born in 78. Emily, I have November a whole bunch of other- like Close to my birthday. Emily, I have a whole bunch of other questions that, that I need to get to, but you keep giving me more information <laughs> that I'm just, yeah, yeah, that I'm just Anytime like. Anytime I meet someone new and tell them this story, they're just like, this cannot possibly be true. And I'm like, no, it kind of is. It's just weird and crazy. And a little uh, South Carolina. <laughs> but- wow. Okay. All right. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right, D comes into the fold, and you kind of just let things lie. I just and let then, it go. And your marriage is, is falling apart, and then you adopt a third child. How did that, with everything going on, how did that decision come about? Um, I personally always wanted a lot of kids. Like once I decided I was going to have kids, I wanted a lot of kids. I wanted my kids to have other kids that look like them in their house, because when Eric and I were married, when my ex-husband and I were married. Yeah, you, you, um, you that's like the second or third time you put his name out there, but, but that's okay. That's okay. I'm sorry. I've been trying that's to okay. change people's names. It's hard to change your ex-husband's name. It, it's, it's okay. It's all right. Um, when we were married, they were we were going to be two white parents with white families with these three Korean children. And I, I've worked really hard to have people that look like them in their lives at all state, like that are my age, Korean adoptees that are my age, um, Korean people that were not adopted that are my age, Korean people that are their age, adoptees that are their age. But I, it was really important to me that they had somebody else that looked like them in their house. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I'm thankful for that in lots of ways that they do have each other. They don't always like each other, but they at least, when we talk about adoption and we talk about Korea, they can all talk about it together. You know, we're going to take this trip back to Korea next year with the adoption agency and our homeland tour now that COVID restrictions are over. And they'll be able to experience that together, not in the same experience. They won't all have the same experience, but they, mm-hmm. they at least can say, oh, we're going back to Korea and it's all yeah. their home, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think what happened is, I just wanted more kids and I was a little bit on autopilot, not a little bit. I was on autopilot. I was, I, don't, I can't say I was emotionally shut down because I was feeling the feelings of being, of lo- learning to love my children and becoming a mom and all those things. So I don't think I ever didn't love my children, but there were just things I just shut off compartmentalized mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think that I could have processed my birth family coming back and we just yeah. kept going. And I'm not sure that I could have fully processed knowing like what happened between my ex-husband and I, I don't know that I was in a space to be able to process. And this is well before I went to therapy to process like what happened on top of us getting matched with Donna. And I think I just put that like over here somewhere to deal with Mm. at a different time. And I think that's probably a common story, but so we quickly made the decision to uh, adopt Noah. And then, um, no, it, I went to Korea by myself on Christmas Day, 2016. Yes, 2016. And then Noah and I came back to DC for, on New Year's Eve that year. And um, once we started to acclimate, I think it became very clear very quickly that my ex-husband and I should needed to to part ways. So I think the decision to have three kids was born out of me always wanting more than two kids, mm-hmm. but also out. But I mean, the decision to move forward in the in light of all of these other things was my ability to just put that over here in this box and like deal with this a little later. And do you think that is learned from just growing up 
how oh, you 100%. did? Yeah. 100%. I mean, because sometimes when you don't, when the adults in your life don't give you the space to process the things that are going on in your life and, and make the, some of the topics completely off the table. And adoption wasn't the only trauma going on in my house growing up. And so there were no safe spaces inside the home. And when you're, when the people that you trust the most aren't giving you the space to, to process and to, to grieve or ask questions or be mad or fill in the blank emotion that might come with trauma, you do learn to compartmentalize very early. Um, I think my sister who's not adopted learned to compartmentalize very early. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was very, very, very good at it and had to unlearn that skill in almost, I guess, a decade now of therapy. And it was very easy at the time. Um, and I don't regret the journey because like Noah's pretty dope. I mean, like if you think about it, like Noah's like a little diabolically dope, but like in a <laughs> little packet. Okay. <laughs> diabolically dope. <laughs> That's how I describe my younger brother is diabolically dope. Yeah, so I know exactly what you mean when you say that. Um, okay. So you and your husband decide to divorce. Mm -hmm. How do you balance being a single mother, having a successful law career? Cause you're climbing that corporate law ladder. How do you, and, and just your personal life, how do you balance all of that as a single mother? Um, in the beginning, not well. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I think that the key is my ex-husband and I, through all the things that we didn't agree on, we did at least agree on the kids and how the kids should be raised and who should be around the kids. And, you know, e even now he's remarried and the three of us make decisions, not all decisions together, but we at least like, talk amongst the houses like, Oh, did you see Donna lost a tooth or like, like little things like that that make it smooth. Um, so you're very so good co-parents. I think that being great co-parents has been made it easier. Um, I, it did. There are other stories that don't look like that and it makes it very difficult. I also during the pandemic um, was fortunately in a position to be able to uh, seek out and pay for help. And I, because I don't have any family close and all of my friends that are seeing are either they have kids over there, you know, that they're taking care of small kids or they're single and they'll help me every now and then. It's not like B doesn't come over and help or like, it's not that she's not so anti B It's that she's got her own nephews and nieces too. And like, no, no single person wants to come and wash your kids all the time. That's just not a yeah. thing. Yeah. That, so, no, yeah. No, it's not a thing. I was very, very lucky that I had some the, the resources to pay for help. And even now after the pandemic, I am able to outsource some things and that is not everybody's story. I'm just, I'm just lucky. I mean, that's really, I don't, I think that the, I don't think that I would be as stable in terms of like just rolling with all these things. If I didn't have that ability to say, Hey, uh, Miss so and so, can you come over this Sunday and just like be here for like five hours while I just like sit yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. so, so you have a strong support system. I now. think I have a strong, a very strong support system. And having other moms, I mean, women friends are amazing and very necessary, I think, to all walks of like all parts of your life. But I feel like in your 40s, with so many transitions and everybody's turning 40 and it's everybody has a different reason for it being hard. Um, it's been very valuable to have these connections and B and I were talking about this recently that like she and I unconditionally love each other. There's nothing that she or I could do. This is unconditional love. We are stuck forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's power in that and there's comfort and support in that, that I'm very, very lucky to have. For That's beautiful. Years. So <laughs> you, you you jumped on one of the questions I was going to ask about your support system. So I'm going to go with, uh, could you share something that that you've learned from your children 
that's shaped your perspective of life, love, and the importance of family? Um, yes. I'm trying to think of things that I can share that aren't too personal. Yeah, don't don't share anything too personal because you got a lot of legal names out here that uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep in or if I got to keep on. I mean, of- some of them are not legal names. Some of them are just their <laughs> nicknames. But I, um, my oldest has taught me to love and be patient and to allow people to change and grow and become themselves mm. without my judgment. And I'm not Hmm. sure that I would have that. I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm saying that I think that's what Jay taught me is to, is that there are going to be times you're going to be terrified uh, of a, it's not a decision of who your child may become or what your child may face. And you don't get to choose for the child. And I think that that extends through all relationships. You don't get to choose your people's decisions, but you do have to love them and you have to support them and you have to try to do it in a non-judgmental way and a non like, no, let me help you kind of way because not everybody needs that and not everybody wants that in any particular situation. I think D has taught me a level of kindness that I didn't know because he is kind. He is challenging in other ways, and he's, so he's taught me a lot of patience. But um, he's kind. And the other thing that he's taught me is that sometimes you can choose to see the good, not in a way that's going to hurt yourself, but you can choose to see the good in people. You don't have to be friends with them, and they don't have to be around you, but you can choose to see the good. And I've watched him do that in lots of walks of life of where maybe we're not going to be around somebody anymore. Or maybe that maybe a friend at school is unkind and he doesn't give them excuses. He just gives them grace. And I think mm. that that's important. It is. Noah. <laughs> Noah has taught me to be silly and to slow <laughs> down and just mm enjoy whatever the hell we're doing. <laughs> like, so he's taught you how to be present. Present. Yeah. yeah. And to not That's... worry about all these little tiny things that don't matter. Because he doesn't yeah. give a shit about those little tiny things. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one S word for the episode. <laughs> That's okay. That's the one episode. That's the one S for the episode. That's beautiful. All right. The final question I have for you is like I said, you're this accomplished professional. You're a single mother raising three beautiful children. Uh, You're navigating your way through it, but I would say listening to your story that you're being pretty successful at it. What advice would you give to other parents, especially working parents, uh, to excel at both their professional careers and at family life? If you can find your people, find your people because some days just being able to vent mm. is is valuable enough to allow you to sleep and get up wow. and again. Wow. I I don't think I don't think we can end the episode any better than that. Emily, I wanna I wanna thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Uh it was fascinating, <laughs> memorable, inspiring. And insightful. So thank thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I know I always say wow at the end of every interview, but wow. Um, It's amazing people's backgrounds, where they come from, how they get to where they are, where they, where they are. And Emily, uh, is a remarkable human being coming from where she came from, um, the, the, the childhood trauma that she had, uh, and then to get where she is now and uh, to be a good mother and balance professional life and work life. Uh, I mean, the personal life and the work life. It's really remarkable. And you got to commend her. And I want to thank her for coming on, telling her story. 
getting really personal and really letting us into a lot of things that she had to deal with growing up and being an adult uh, and just sharing. So I couldn't have asked for a, a better interview, couldn't have asked for a more open person. So I personally want to say thank you. Uh, these interviews, they keep getting better and better. Uh, not to toot my own horn, but toot, toot. They keep getting better and better. And I'm going to continue on inter interviewing and talking to interesting people uh, and giving you guys really interesting content. Uh, check out some of the other interviews have you, if you haven't seen them. I know everybody loves the Sibling Happy Hour, but these interviews with these people, uh, they're really, really interesting. So go ahead and go check that out. Go ahead and follow us and subscribe on our YouTube page. Share with all your friends. Uh, thank you again for listening and watching. And until next time, I'm going to holla. Thank you for listening to Unsolicited Perspectives with Bruce Anthony. Please subscribe, like, comment, share, and donate. Donations help us keep giving you this free content each and every week. Until next time, Audi 5000. Peace.